as we're gathered together today. There's certainly what we're acknowledging in this weekend with Memorial Day and thinking about those who have given their life, laid down their life, made that ultimate sacrifice for our freedom. And that's sobering, isn't it? We have so much to be grateful for. And and this is not some connection of of nationalism and and the Word of God, but I, I think it would be wrong for us to not realize that we should be grateful for those who lay down their lives. Those who serve us, even in their lives and in their livelihood, serve us on front lines and serve us as first responders. We have so much to be thankful for. And and in our faith, as we begin to look at the Word of God, we have much to be thankful for there as well. And maybe you're like me, when when you kind of pause and you step outside of the normal routine of the day... You take this time on Sunday, and and we start to talk about things like we have so much to be grateful for. This question begins to nag at the back of your mind, then why do I complain so much? Maybe that's just me. I hope not. But why is it that our hearts are so prone to those things? It's because we so easily focus on them. They so easily take on this perspective of being so close and so near that they seem bigger than the God who is over all of them. And yet we do have much to be thankful for. As we've been looking at in our series in the book of Galatians on our new identity in Jesus Christ, that actually calls us to be thankful in every season because of who Christ is, because of him being with us, no matter what it is that we're facing We have this doctrine of justification that's been played out for us over the first three chapters of the book, and it calls us to something. It says that in the courtroom of God, you are declared not guilty because of Jesus Christ. What good news that is for us today. And then not only that, we are adopted as sons of God. And the blessings that we receive because of that are staggering for us. Consider just a few at the outset this morning. We we have an eternal Father. We have a Father who will always be there perfectly for us. The perfect Father, not a type of Father, not an amalgamation of all the good dads on earth. He is the Father. And the rest of us just fall short of that glory. He's the Father. And our adoption by God means that we have an eternal family. Look around this morning at some of your family members. It's marvelous, isn't it? There's no no reason for us to have this sense that we are alone in anything that we walk through. Not only that, we have an eternal home that we have to look forward to. These, any one of them on their own, are amazing, to say the least. But isn't it glorious to think that we've been adopted by God? So let me ask you a question this morning. Are, Are you a son of God? Notice that I didn't ask, are are you going to church, read your Bible, raising your kids in a certain way? Do you have intimacy with God as your father? That's what you have access to because of adoption. That's what it means to be a son of God. It means to have this kind of intimacy with him. And you know, in Galatians, we see that Paul is really not mincing words with the people that are gathered there in Galatia. He doesn't mince words with them at all. He goes right to them, and and he calls them fools at one point. And you you realize, like, Paul is serious about the message that he is bringing to the church in Galatia. He is serious about these things. As Seth reminded us a few weeks ago, these things were not nice, but they were kind. 
But perhaps it would, it would benefit us to take a moment this morning to just define foolishness. If, if Paul's going to call the people of Galatia fools, what does he mean when he says that to them? Well, a fool, according to the Bible, is someone who refuses to listen to wisdom, someone who refuses to learn from discipline, failing to fear God, failing to respect the rules of reality, repeating their folly much like a dog returns to his vomit. Sweet dreams, everyone. There's a mental picture for you. You know, it doesn't seem very nice to say it that way, does it? Certainly not the mental images that I typically try to conjure in illustrations, and yet that's the phrase that Scripture uses for what it looks like to be a fool on a biblical level. It's sobering to think about. I don't think we have to look very far in the world today to find biblical-level fools, do we? We don't typically have to ask, like, is anyone acting foolish? And we just have to go about our day, and we see it all around. We, we encounter it in so many different ways. The world is acting the fool on biblical levels. But, but I'm not surprised when the world acts like the world. We shouldn't be surprised when the world acts like, quote-unquote, the world. But have you ever paused to think that there can be fools at a biblical level in the church as well? Man, it got quiet just then. Either everybody fell asleep at the same time, or we're pausing to think about that. There can be fools at a biblical level in the church as well. Paul is writing to a church. It shouldn't surprise us that there can be fools in the church as well. So Paul is writing to a church, so, so that makes sense to us. But our growth in godliness is the process of God removing foolishness from our hearts and replacing it with something far greater, his truth, his wisdom, the closeness of our relationship with him. Now, I said earlier, look around to see your family. I'm not going to tell you now to look around and see the fools sitting around you. But I think if we were being honest with ourselves, we all have our own ways that we are still given to foolishness, don't we? We have our own ways that we're given to foolishness. And, and Galatians serves as a warning to the church not to foolishly adopt a biblical form of legalism. Now, you may think that seems like an oxymoron. Actually, the false teachers that were coming into the church, they were not encouraging Gentile Christians to ignore God's law. Notice that. They were not telling them, ignore everything about the law as they had in their pagan days. No, the, those false teachers that were coming in were urging them to adopt everything of the Old Testament Mosaic law in order to be justified and pleasing to God. That's what Paul's correcting. He's correcting them, adding something to the gospel in terms of a religious form. If I were using, you know, kind of like sports says verticality now and physicality, words that aren't actual words, I would say this is a religiosity that's being added back into the good news of the gospel. And Paul is saying, yes, don't be surprised when the world acts like the world. Be surprised when the church acts like the world and adds something to the gospel. Be watching out for that. That's something that we should be aware of in our own hearts and minds today. And so with that in mind, let's turn 
to our passage today in Galatians chapter 4. We're going to begin in verse 8, and then in just a moment, I'm going to skip down some verses. We're going to take this in some brackets today. So let's begin. Galatians 4, verse 8. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those that by nature are not God's. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God. Oh, there's an amazing sentence right there. How can you turn your back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid that I have labored over you in vain. And if you would, just just jump down to verse 21 with me. Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born according to the promise. Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, O barren one, who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor, for the children of the desolate one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman." Lord, I'll confess we need your help to understand these words this morning. Holy Spirit, we invite you to help light your ways in our hearts. Lord, help us to turn from our own ways. Help us to turn from biblical foolishness or biblical legalism, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, I wonder if we rightly notice the change of tone in Paul's words here. He's no longer in foolish fool's mode. He is expressing his heart to the church. And you know, there are times that we will come across passages and it begins to inform us of this caricature of those who we are reading in Scripture. So we think of Paul and we think, well, he's this harsh truth person. And, and we kind of keep that in the back of our mind. That's, that's the picture. That's, that's the way that we read the words that are coming off the page. And we miss those moments where there may be some change in voice or tone in the written word. I think it's important for us to realize there is a change of voice and tone in this passage today. Yes, Paul will call out falsehoods when he sees them. And here he expresses a pastoral heart for the people that he has long loved, a church that he planted. 
It's important for us to realize that these are some of Paul's most pastoral words in the entirety of the New Testament. And you know, I asked earlier, are you a son of God? And that's intentional language based on what we saw in Galatians last week. We're not going to try to revisit all of that, but let's remind ourselves that sons are the ones who receive the full measure of rights related to the household. They have the responsibilities that go along with that as well. They are able to have an intimate communion with God the Father. And one of the ways that we express an intimate communion, yes, is through the act of communion, which we will partake in later on today, but another way that we are given that we can constantly commune with God is prayer. It's a way that we can stay in communion with Him. And based on this text, I believe that there are three prayers that arise that are appropriate for anyone desiring to follow Christ faithfully. Now you may say, how are you getting three prayers out of that? Well, let's look together. Let's look at the first prayer. The first prayer is this. God, show me how to walk in your grace. God, show me how to walk in your grace. Now you may think, that sounds like a wonderful prayer. I think it is. I think it's a prayer that we should all be praying. See, Paul is not introducing new information in Galatians chapter 4. Actually, what he's doing is he's recapping everything he's been talking about up to this point and all the way through chapter 3. And what's happening in this passage between Sarah and Hagar, Paul is returning to the image, not just of covenant, but of slavery. He's reminding the Galatians about the transformation that has taken place in their lives. In other words, don't cast off one form of slavery for another. If I were to put this in classic rock terms, this is not say hello to the new boss, same as the old boss. I thought Louis Seifer would get that reference. But I heard nothing, or at least Mike Nash, but nothing still. Oh well, we try again next week. See, the transformation that's happened here is they have gone from slavery to sonship. Last week we talked about it this way, that in the courtroom of God, it's not just that God as the judge has declared us to be uh, righteous because of Jesus' work, but he has also said, now let's go home. What a wonderful picture. Here it goes from the fact that you are a slave to a son. What a marvelous picture. What's happening here? We are beginning to see all of the aspects of this radical transformation that happens because of Jesus Christ. And like the Galatians, we need to pray that God would make us aware of what he's done for us in Jesus Christ so that we will in turn live accordingly. In other words, preach the gospel to yourself. Pray the gospel for yourself. Be one who is in the word to where you see, I'm not going to turn to the left or to the right. I'm going to continue on this way that God has called me to. And I'm going to do that in the strength that he provides through Jesus Christ alone. That his spirit would be awakened in me. That we would actually have this, this kind of mentality that says, God, show me how it is that I got to this place. Now, this is not a reliving of everything that you've been saved from. This is a reminder of the good news of the gospel that God shows you in spite of all of that. This is not going back and recounting all of the things of your past as if it's some kind of way that you are punishing yourself again. This is a way that says, look at what God has done. Show me how it is that I've gotten to this place. Perhaps it's been a while since you've taken inventory. Maybe things have changed in your life in terms of the season or stage of life that you're in. We're in the midst of a transition in our home right now. I've got one son that lives outside the house, another that's gone away for the summer. 
And all of a sudden we've realized there's a lot of time that is in our house now that did not exist before. It's almost disorienting. And you know what I'm concerned about? I think that's a scheme of the enemy in those disorienting moments to just begin to fill that time with other things and a lack of intentionality. At least that's the temptation I know I'm facing. I, I enjoyed the other night. We sat down and we watched a show and it was quiet in the house and I was like, ooh, this is nice. How easy it would be to give in to the nice things of the world and stop living intentionally for the kingdom. At least that's what I'm facing. Show me how I got here. What does that mean? It's time to take inventory again. It's time to take inventory of where we are as a family and, and to look at those things and to say, God, what is it that in your grace you want to continue to do? What are those things that you're calling us to that are going to continue to stretch us and grow us to live as a people who are desperate for your grace? Not resting in a, in a way that just puts us on cruise control for the rest of our lives. If you know anything about me or the way that I work, that's a frightening thought to me. I'm not really a person who loves to go into kind of maintenance mode and just on cruise control. And yet how tempting that can be to do spiritually. You know, Paul's discussion of slavery particularly in relation to the law, is illustrated at the end of chapter 4 when we get into this analogy of Sarah and Hagar. And Paul's taking us back to Genesis chapters 16 and 17 where we're introduced to Hagar, a slave woman in Abraham's household. And Paul uses this story as an illustration for the people in Galatia to understand the child born into slavery, Ishmael, the child born from the promise in Isaac, and he's contrasting the two mothers, Hagar as a, as a slave woman and Sarah as a free woman. Paul says that Hagar and Ishmael stand for the old covenant, the law, and that produced slaves. And this is exactly what Paul is talking about back in Galatians chapter 3, verse 23, where he says that we are imprisoned by the law. But Paul says we've been set free. We don't become children of God because of the law. We come Children of God because of the promise of God to Abraham. To put it another way, we are not saved by obedience to the law, but we are saved by faith in the promise of God. That's what saves us. Now, I don't know if you know the full story, but if I could sum it up this way, I would say that Father Abraham, well, he had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham, and I am one of them. So are you. So let's praise the Lord. Amen? That's the loudest amen I've ever gotten preaching here. All right, I got to change some things about sermon prep. We've been set free. Sons of God. Set free to enjoy this intimacy with God, our Father. Salvation comes to us because we've been awakened by the Spirit. It's what we were singing about in worship just a moment ago. We've been awakened by the Spirit. That's a key phrase in verse 29. But just at the time, he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born, what? According to the Spirit. That's the contrast that Paul is continuing to draw out here for us. This was the difference between Isaac and Ishmael. 
Ishmael, born according to the flesh, the natural way that children are born. Abraham and Hagar are attempted to produce something in his own strength. And, you know, I believe this actually goes back to some of the, the ministry time that we had in prophetic ministry just a moment ago. Whatever it is that you're facing, are you, are you attempting to see something through that you believe that God has called you to in your own strength and through your own ways? See, Abraham serves for us as an example of how not to go about that. I have this promise of God, and I believe that I know everything about what that means. I believe I know everything about how it is that that promise is going to be accomplished, and so I'm going to, to work all of my ways to try to accomplish that. I'm going to manipulate. I'm going to cajole. I'm going to try to work up circumstances to where they, they align just right. In Abraham's case, he took one of his slaves. And he bore a child through her. And God says, that is not the way that my promise will come about. He's not going to use these natural means. He's going to be intervening in a supernatural way. That's a miracle when a 100-year-old man and a 90-year-old woman have a baby. And then many sons has Father Abraham. Y'all going to remember this one this morning. Paul asks in Galatians chapter 3, verse 2, Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing by faith? Don't ignore that question. How did you receive this? How was it that you got here? How did you arrive to this place in your life because of everything that you have just masterfully worked out in your life? Or are you where you are because of the grace of God? Not only are we praying that God would show us how it was that we got here, we're praying, God, show us who I am. How many of us just need to be reminded that we are sons of God? We're not slaves to this new religion. Paul refers to these Jewish ordinances as demonic when they're approached as a way to make one right with God in themselves. You know, I think about today. Today is Pentecost Sunday. In, in Jewish times, this would have been what would have been celebrated as a part of the Festival of Booths. But, you know, I wonder today if as we gathered together... Those who know about the church calendar enough to know that today is Pentecost Sunday, which just simply means 50 days since Easter. This is when we believe that the account of Acts chapter 2 happened. And you may come in today and you have this expectation of, you know, if ever there was a day I was going to receive the gift of tongues, it's today. Right? Because this is the day that happened back in the day. And so we come in this great, with this greater awareness and this greater expectation that this is the day that God has ordained to show himself as powerful. Paul says, no. Now, I'm not here to discount the miraculous and amazing events of Acts chapter 2. But I'm not here to try to recreate them either. Because there's not a single day on the calendar that God doesn't want to show himself to be mighty and strong. There's not a single day on the calendar that God doesn't want us to live with a desperation for him. There's not a single day on the calendar, church calendar, physical calendar, solar, lunar calendar, whatever calendar you want to reference, Apple calendar, that he doesn't want us to live as a people who are desperate for his presence. 
There isn't a single day on the calendar that he doesn't want to, us to say, Abba, Father, today is not the only day you're allowed to call out to him in that way. Every day we are able to call out to him on that way. Do you know what I'm grateful for today? If you walked in with a greater awareness of day of, of the day being Pentecost Sunday and a greater awareness of God and his spirit and his presence and his power, here's the good news for you. You can do that tomorrow too. And he will show himself mighty. What tremendous privileges we have as sons. Sons of the Most High. You know, if we come into church and we sing the songs and we study the Word, we might think that that's how it is that we're going to earn God's favor. If you've been here any length of time, you realize we would say, no, that is not how you earn God's favor. If that's how you're thinking, you're no different than the billions of Hindus in the world today who are bowing down to their gods. Paul is uncovering a scheme of the devil in the first century church that continues in the 21st century. It continues in the church today. It's dangerous. It's deceiving. Satan's strategy to condemn your soul doesn't just involve tempting you to do all the wrong things. It wants you to do the right things with the wrong spirit. If you start going about all of these things, going to church, leading a small group, teaching, leading your home in an upright way, but you're doing all of these things, thinking that these things are the way that you're working your way to God, that is a scheme of the enemy. We want you to be small group leaders, but not so that you earn God's favor. We want you to be in God's word, but not so that you earn God's blessing. We want you to be led by the Holy Spirit, but not because that means that you're on some other plane working your way to God. We want you to experience those things because you're a son of God. And he delights to pour out his presence on you. Well, you may say, well, I pray. Big deal. So do Muslims. You may think, well, well I go to worship. Hindus do the same. They worship all day long in many contexts. You may say, well, I study the Bible. Have you ever met a Jehovah's Witness? They study the Bible. They can quote it oftentimes better than most Christians. You say, well, I go on missions trips. Mormons do the same. It's required of them, and, and scores of them give years of their lives to do so. But if your Christianity consists of some slavery to religion in order to make yourself right for, before God then you might as well be living for the pagan religions of the world. We either make Christianity just like every other world religion, where we're checking off boxes, where we're going through motions, we find just the right routine, just the right ritual for ourselves, or we can take that step of faith and step into the intimate presence of God. I don't know about you, but I want all of the latter and all the more. Not only do we want God to show us how we got here, not only do we want God to show us who we are, we need to have a firm understanding of where it is that we are going. 
We need to have a firm understanding of where it is that we're going. And Paul reminds us in this passage today that because we are free, we are not living for earthly pleasure. We aren't in slavery to the weak, miserable principles of the world. We're actually living for a heavenly home that's to come. And that begins to inform us for today. We're not free in order to be in bondage to the world. We don't live like everybody else. We don't want to do all of the things that other people want to do. Yesterday I was on a lake with some friends and, and we're, we're going around these lakes, this chain of lakes here in Winter Park and we're paddleboarding around. And so when you're paddleboarding, you get to have like the slow view of everything that's going on in the lake. At least I do. And as we're going around the lake, it's beautiful. And you know what? It makes sense to me why so many people put all of their relational and pleasurable eggs into the basket of a weekend like this. Oh, we've got a three-day weekend? Well, let's live it up on the lake. We've got a three-day weekend? It means we don't have to recover for a whole extra day. Let's go. And I think that you sitting here today reveals in your heart of hearts you don't want to live like that. And yet, we see how easy it is. There's a pastor that I know up in Tallahassee. He says it this way, Sunday mornings are a Saturday night decision. That's true. Sunday mornings are a Saturday night decision. None of you showed up accidentally this morning. It's not like you said, I thought I was getting in the car for something else. See, there are decisions that we have to make related to our priorities. There are claims that it makes on our days. There are claims that it makes on our time. I understand the temptation, and yet we are not called to live for earthly pleasure. Why? Because we know there's a heavenly home to come. So we want to be gathered together. And I know in my heart, I was even just saying it a moment ago, there's so much room to grow in this area. Especially now that I have all this time on my hands. <laughs> Perhaps you're experiencing the same. So our first prayer, just as a reminder, is, God, show me how to walk in your grace. Our second prayer is this. God, show me how to give me great, excuse me, sorry, I slipped right past it in my notes here. God, help me to trust in your word. Now we've kind of taken verses 8 through 11 21 through 31, and we use them almost as bookends. Well, let's dive into the meat of this passage. Let's look at Galatians chapter 4, verses 12 through 16. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first, and though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me. But received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that, if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? You know, in verse 12, Paul talks about how he came to the Galatians because of a an ailment that he had. And in many times, Paul, the Jewish man, when he would be going into 
Gentile context, he would not have necessarily followed all of his Jewish customs. Actually, he would have set many of those aside in order to show that salvation was not dependent on these things. But now he's pleading with the Galatians to do the same. Stop living as if you need to do certain things in the law in order to be saved. You know, it reminds us that we have to learn how to trust in God's word even when it's not easy. Now, this is again where we have this contrast with the world. It is becoming increasingly difficult to live for the glory of God in the world around us. Many times, human resources department or governmental structures or, or campuses are arranged in a way that makes it difficult to live your own faith. And yet, we need to have this very simple prayer, help me, God, to trust in your word. That living for your glory, even when it's not easy, is worth it. Saying yes to certain things, saying no to other things. Paul's trials remind us that we need God's help even just to trust in his word. We need that Holy Spirit to be with us even just to trust in his word. God, help us to live for your glory when it's not easy. You know, when you start living radically by grace, it'll cost you. It'll cost you. It'll cost you in the world for sure. But you know, it may cost you in some religious circles as well. I was thinking about worship this morning, and, and here we have this time of worship and, and a time of ministry, a prophetic ministry during a hymn. And maybe you didn't notice that, but we're seeing crown him with many crowns. That's a, a traditional hymn. And then we have a, a ministry by the Holy Spirit. Are you allowed to do that? C can you have ministry by the Holy Spirit during a hymn? Yes! But do you know how many churches would never let those two things touch? If they believed in both of them at all. Now, this is not some puffing us up as a church. That's not at all why I share this. It's calling out of a mentality and an attitude that, that begins to create these divisions on things that God does not create divisions amongst. And I'm using a moment like that to say that God is going to move amongst his people. Let's stop trying to box that in. Let's stop trying to look at things and just go like, I don't know, I mean, they had, they had a prophetic guy go up during a hymn. We have to seek and trust in God's word even when it's not easy. I know that I will get questions this week about both ends of the spectrum I just mentioned. I know that. I welcome them. I love those conversations. Because they are not opposed to one another. Let's stop treating them as such. You know, when people really begin to trust in God's word, taking it at face value, believing it, living it, there can at times be religious people that rise up and make noise. And this is not me trying to set myself up as some sort of martyr because I'm the one that gets those questions. Our other elders get those questions as well. I'm grateful for those conversations. But if you're just going to make noise because you're coming in with some kind of predetermined way it's supposed to be, check 
the references, please. Look at the Word of God and see how it calls us to rely on it and not man-made divisions. Help us, God, we pray. Because the question for us is, will we live according to God's Word even when it's not easy? And we need to pray that God will help us to hear even when it's not popular. We need God to help us to live out the truth when it's not easy. We need God to help us hear it when it's not popular. Paul closes out verse 16 by saying, Have I now become your enemy by telling the truth? Now Paul has said some hard things to the Galatians, not because he hates them, but because he loves them. Paul was willing to risk his own reputation with the Galatians by telling them the truth instead of what it is that they wanted to hear. But here's where we can wrestle as a church, as a gathering of people, with a difficult question. Do we want to be a popular church or do we want to be a faithful one? I believe God's called me to lead a faithful church. That's what I believe God has called us to be as a church, a faithful church. You know, I've noticed a slight change of language when people will talk about groups of friends, maybe elements of community that they find. They talk about finding their people. Even in marketing and, and advertisement, you can say, you can see this phrase, come find your people. And I think that there is something that it touches a longing that we all have in our heart to belong to something. Maybe even belong to something that's greater than just an individual. Myself as an individual. We want to we belong to something that's greater. I think that's, there's a desire in us for that. I think it's a God-created desire for community. But when we gather together at church, you are not here to find your people. You are here to find God's people. That may seem like a very simple turn of phrase, but it's significant in the difference. I love you enough to say this out loud just for a second, which is my way of telling you this might be offensive. I may not have chosen you. I may not have chosen you to be a friend. I may not have chosen you to be a brother or a sister. Is that too honest? I may not have chosen you to be one that I'm in community with. But you know, someone far greater than me chose you. Before the dawn of time, God chose you. And you are my brother and you are my sister. I hope that doesn't come across as offensive. I think it's just acknowledging the sinfulness in my own heart. But God chose you. And I am gathered here with you because we, we are God's people. And that matters to me so much more than my people or your people. And that's what should reign over all of our perspective with one another. Are we a part of God's people? It's not going to be popular in the days ahead. It's not going to be popular in the weeks or months or years ahead. But God's people do not strive to be popular. We strive to be faithful. We want to be faithful to the Word. Even when it exposes blind spots or areas of, in our lives that need some kind of radical adjustment, 
It even contains truths that you or I, frankly, today may not want to hear. And this is why it's important for us to pray, God, help me to trust in your word. Lastly this morning, God, give me great zeal for your purpose. Let's read in verses 17 through 20. Because Paul's going to say in verse 18, it's good to have zeal as long as it's for the right purposes. Galatians 4, 17. They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out that you may make much of them. It is always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am present with you. My little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you and now change the way of my tone, for I am perplexed about you. God, give us great zeal for your purpose. We want to have a passion to be conformed into the image of Christ. We pray that beyond anything else, that what we are being formed into, this morphosis that is happening, this formation that is happening, is into the image of Christ. Paul wanted Christ used as the mold that was going to shape inwardly and outwardly the lives of these freed Galatians. He wants them to be like Christ more than anything else. This is a prayer for myself. This is a prayer that I pray for myself in the moments of my life. This is a a prayer that I pray as a father, as a pastor. It's a prayer for my family. It's a prayer for our church. God, form us into the image of your Son. And give us a passion to see others transformed in this way as well. See, when Christ is formed in us, it's going to begin to affect the way that we proclaim things in the world around us. So we pray that God would give us a passion in the same way that Paul has for the people in Galatia. That we would have a passion to see others brought into this glory of Christ as well. And Paul uses very vivid imagery here. He uses the imagery of a mother who is longing even through pain to give birth to her child. Paul longed to see the Galatians transformed for the glory of Christ. So we pray for each other, we teach each other, we model the Christ-like life before each other because we want others to be transformed as well. As we draw to a close today and as the band joins me on stage and begins to play, I believe that the Lord has led us this week to just have a time of prayer as a church, to pray through these three things, and we're going to Uh, Go ahead and stand with me if you would, and we're going to pray these things. I've got three of our elders lined up to come after this first song, and they're going to come up and pray, and then we're going to have a time of communion together as a church, reminding us of that intimacy that we have with God as our Father. God, we pray that you would help us to trust in your word. We pray that we would have a zeal for your purposes, and we pray that you would show us how to walk in the glory of your grace. We're not here to be followers of Jesus for our own sake. We're here together for each other. Our church to be a community that weeps with one another, pleading with one another, confronting each other when necessary, praying with each other, exhorting one another. This past Wednesday, as I was writing this sermon out, as I was working through capturing this, on that same day I had the privilege of of writing out thoughts for a funeral service that will happen this week, as well as a wedding that will happen this week. And I remember just praying, God, I pray 
that, well, one, I don't treat the wedding like the funeral. Dearly beloved, we're gathered here today, you know. That is a day of rejoicing. But you know what? So is this funeral. It's Elsie's homecoming. It's a day of rejoicing as well. And I remember thinking, Lord, help me strike the right tone in each of these circumstances, in each of these times. But, but may a funeral and a wedding day rightly inform today. Because those are wonderful moments. Those are touch points in people's lives. They're wonderful to be together, even in the midst of grief. But we're here to be for one another, with one another in those moments of grief and in those moments of rejoicing. And we do all of this because we want to see each other transformed. Not into our own image, not into some prefab image of what our culture says that we should look like, which is ever-changing. No, we want to be conformed into the image of Christ, the unchanging one. Paul says, listen, if you want to be satisfied, don't seek those other transformations. Don't seek all of these other things that others are going to put on you. If you want to be satisfied, be transformed into the image of Christ. That's the only time we'll be satisfied. And so our prayer, even as we begin to sing this song, is that God would make us dissatisfied with the things of this world. And that we would only find our satisfaction as Christ is formed in us as we begin to take on the shape of the one who gave his very life for us. Church, let's worship together.